What's happening, everyone? Welcome back to another edition of the FIFA Play On podcast. On this week's show, I talk to a footballing legend from the other side of the world about his career and some of the most amazing things he's currently working on in the game. And Alvaro and I indulge our competitive streaks in the latest instalment of our versus battle. Lots to get through, so let's jump straight into it with this week's Fieldwork interview. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Fieldwork, the part of our show where we talk to a footballer about their life, their passions, and maybe a little bit about their musical tastes. Our guest today is real Australian football royalty. Tim Cahill is the highest scoring Australian footballer of all time and was the first Australian to score at a World Cup. He's played his football literally all over the world with stints in Australia, England, China, America and India. I can't wait to chat to him today. Tim Cahill, welcome to the FIFA Play On podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. So let's start at the beginning, Tim. You grew up in Australia with so many sports cricket, athletics, rugby league, rugby union, and of course, Aussie rules. What was it that made you choose football? What, what was out of all of those sports? It took a while because um, my mum's from Samoa, which is the Pacific mm. Islands. Uh, so we're all rugby. So I've got a lot of famous cousins and friends that play for the All Blacks or for Samoa and also in the league in Australia, um, which is great. But um, my dad's from England. He's a Dagenham boy, West Ham supporter. And I'm a big lover of football. So growing up, I basically, from the time I couldn't play rugby with my cousins and always getting injured, uh, my body was more along the lines of of football. And for as long as I could remember um, watching World Cups or watching football on TV, I was kicking a ball around, whether it was rolling up socks and playing with my brothers. um, That was it. And, you know, come 16 when it was time to rock and roll, my parents took a loan out and pretty much said, it's time to, to go to England. Wow. Often when you do play other sports, it actually makes you even better as a, as a footballer, right? You were so athletic as a player. So you mentioned there that you moved to England as a teenager. What was it like? Yeah, I think, I think for me, the, the best thing was is getting the opportunity. Obviously, my sister, my brothers, we rented our, li- our whole lives. Um, and fin- financially, it wasn't something we could really do. But um, my parents took a massive gamble. They knew that I was ready. My dad phoned someone up in England and said, look, my son's scoring goals. He's doing well. This could be the time that he gets the opportunity. And back then, there is no WhatsApp. There's no phone calls. Basically, you had to go on a computer and listen to that dial tone or get a phone card. So it was difficult, but I was, I was really strong-minded and I was excited to go and um, try. And I went to Millwall. And that's cutting a long story short because I first went there, stayed with some friends, Glenn and Lindsay Stanley, the, the brother of Smoking Joe Stanley from the All Blacks, the most fam- one of the most famous All Black players. I stayed with his family. Wow. And then I waited for the trial. And to be honest with you, Millwall to me was the most amazing stadium, the Den. I'd never seen anything like it as a footballer. And I was just excited. I was young. I was basically would run through brick walls um, in training. And they seen something I had the opportunity to sign for a Premier League club, a first division club, but I chose Millwall, which was the second division. They gave me the opportunity. And that's something for me that I'll never forget because the sacrifices my parents made for my future, that's the level I was at and also uh, the type of person I was. So it was a big moment for me being 16. It was, you know, maybe 40 hours on a plane, three stops. Wow. I'm very thankful for that opportunity. Gosh, huge sacrifice. And I'm sure a lot of people don't know that it was a trial at first. You know, Millwall is that club that, you know, you must have had to develop that thick skin. Obviously, you've gone in on a trial. 
How much of that time at Millwall do you think actually shaped the rest of your career? Everything, everything. You play at the den, you can play anywhere. Mm. Um, literally through those times, it was really difficult. The culture was difficult. The players, you weren't accepted straight away. That's when I was cleaning boots, cleaning toilets, changing rooms. So to be honest, look, I'm lucky because I come from a strong culture heritage in Samoa that, um, mm. you know, I knew that this opportunity was my only opportunity. And it meant that if I had to break barriers, if I had to basically get through all these elements to become an Australian sort of footballer playing in this tough club, you know, big reputation, very intimidating. You know, I'd done the hard part. I got on the plane. So I was fortunate enough that I could train every day, twice a day, in the snow, rain, hail, sunshine. And, you know, the journey was good because if you fast-forwarded it, I played 250 games for the club. We got to an FA Cup final. We got promoted to the championship. And then we missed out on the Premier League, and that was time for me to go. So do you know what? I loved it, and it's made me who I am today because I'm really strong-minded. Um, mm. And if you play at Millwall, you can literally play anywhere. You, you've referenced there your Samoan background quite a lot. It, it, do, do you, it, you sound very proud of it. Do you think that's given you that character that obviously makes you strong-minded, that's informed your football and everything you're doing? It's, it's everything, like even today. Look, I left school at 16. Um, I retired when I was 39 and I went back to school. I decided to take a Harvard course. I decided now to do my sports diploma. I finished my UEFA Pro license now. I'm fully licensed. And now I work in one of the biggest institutions in the world where we develop the future of Qatar, the kids in sports, in football. We work with the QSL. We work with all these different elements. So I have a strong work ethic. And I'm very strong-minded because you have to go through so many different barriers. And it's funny because people say to me, oh, how do you deal with all the pressures? Well, pressure was my parents having to get a loan. Right. Pressure was my parents having to have other kids they had to provide for. So I'm lucky that I looked at football as not the only thing that drove me. What I looked at football was a massive platform to build my country, to build things I believe in, Mm. um, educational things outside of the park. So... You know, there's so many amazing things that I've done, you know, whether it's writing children's books and being an author to, to, to all these business elements that Millwall played a big part, but so did my football career, changing cultures, understanding people, working in different elements. So I think when you belong to something, it's easier, yeah. you know, because you yeah. can break through those barriers. But if you don't know why you're doing it or what the meaning of is it, football is just a game. Yeah. I, I look at it quite simple where people can look too much into it and take it too seriously and overthink it, and then it owns you. You know, I'm lucky that football doesn't own me, which is, has been the big thanking to my parents and especially my parents teaching me what to belong to and what will keep you safe throughout your career. Yeah, no, I, I'm so inspiration. I can massively relate to that, you know, as a, for you as a, as a male footballer doing different things. You know, for me as a female footballer, I went into law, became a lawyer and, you know, just did different things. And as you said, football is that platform to go go and do um, other things and inspire other people as well. Amazing. So, Tim, as you might know, this podcast is not just about football. Yep. It's about music too. Um, I'm, sure that, I'm sure that over the years, maybe at Everton um, and, and your other clubs, there was a chant about you, Tim Cahill, sung by the fans. As a player, what is it like to have a chant about you? How much of a boost does it give you when you're playing? It's massive. And the thing is, is so long as it's good, then you're doing something right on the pitch. And mm-hmm. I was lucky. I was a goal scorer. I made things happen. But when they sing your name, um, 
there's nothing better. Like literally you play for the fans. I'm very, very close to the fans of Millwall now. Yeah. Everton, I only ever had two clubs in England. Um, so I have a strong affinity with what fans want. And now working in football, working now with the, with the club in Belgium that, that, that I helped to run, I build it all around the fans. I build it all around the feeling. So when you talk about music, that's what makes me tick, you know, even in the office. <laughs> music is everything. It relaxes you, but hearing your name in a song in a stadium is priceless. Tell me your musical taste. Tell me. I, I always had this thing with, with big games is I listen to R&B, Keith Sweat, Boys to Men, Mariah Carey. Nice. People used to think, what's this? <laughs> like, what is this? But then I could quickly change it to, because I needed to mellow. It's like the calm before the storm. Mm. So I, I like a nice vibe. I like to feel like, you know, and then I like a bit of techno, which is a little bit of hyped when I get closer to, to the moment. So I was pretty mixed. But I, I do enjoy my easy listening. You know, I'm a big, big R&B fan. Yeah. So you, yeah. so you like the chilled music before you go out with all that energy on the pitch. Yeah. You had so much energy when you play. So that, that makes sense. The yin to the yang. Yeah. That's <laughs> the one. That's the one. What's your music? Uh, I'm, I'm similar to you. I, you know, before games, I needed to chill out. So I listened to a lot of sort of Erica Badu. Yes. You know, Aliyah, Beyonce, just the, you know, the R&B, soul. I, I was the one, whenever there was a DJ in the dressing room that had the mad music, I'd have to put my headphones in and just zone out, you know? <laughs> so very, very similar I'm to you. you. Very similar to I'm you. you. And tell us more about Everton. You know, as you said, you, you are a club legend and, you know, there's so many memories around you playing at Everton. Liverpool in itself as a city, in terms of its history, the culture, the fashion, the music. How much did you get to explore that side of, of the city when you were at Everton? Listen, I've seen every side of Liverpool that was to see because I was naive. I went there, we were training at Belfield. I signed at a time when two days later they sold Wayne Rooney to Manchester United. I thought I was going to be playing with Wayne Rooney. I picked my jersey number in between Tommy Gravison and Wayne Rooney. I was number 17. Wow. And he'd left. And at that time, you know, we, we, we were struggling to stay in the league the year before. I had a call. I went and met the manager, David Moyes. I met um, Bill Kenwright. And I'm all about people. If people make me feel safe and secure my family, then I'm all in. Mm. Uh, one thing ever to me is it's a people's club. Yeah. Yes, I had other opportunities and yes, we had other negotiations and all through my career at Everton, but I stayed because of the people I signed for, because of the fans and because of the project. And when you look at it, our first season, we finished fourth. Right. Marcus Bent, they signed for 500 grand. Tim Cahill, one and a half million pounds. And then we had older players, experienced. Tommy Gravison, Duncan Ferguson, Kevin Campbell, Alan Stubbs, David Weir, all these types of players and a few young youngsters. So really I was the unknown, but it was perfect because Everton made me who I am today and still to this day I'm very close with the chairman, still speak with the club regularly. I help them to do things um, from afar. But the city, I moved to the city. I moved Calderstones Park and basically John Arnorisa was my neighbour would, you know, you'd have fans walking around. You couldn't even put <laughs> petrol in. Uh, I love the fans. I love the red side. I love the blue side. And that's all part of it. You know, the thing is I really, really respected two of the biggest clubs in one city. And now hopefully Everton can learn and respect the processes that needs to be taken to finish in the top four, to finish in the top six. So out of eight seasons, I think I finished in four times 
in the top eight, whatever it was, but that was through stability. It was through building a core and a belief that was more than a club, was more than money. It was soldiers, you know. So David Moyes did some amazing mm. things and hopefully now Rafa can do the same. Yeah, that's amazing. I mentioned in the intro the number of countries that you've played in. Which is the country for you as an Australian that has had the most impact on you around the world? India. India by far. I think um, I was lucky enough to be smart enough with knowing what my role would be after football um, to play in China and uh, India. Mm. And people were saying, why, why? I said, because when you know different cultures and you understand different languages and you also understand the way that federations run or the setups, the MLS, all these things, they all have different attributes. They all have strengths and they all have weaknesses. Um, And now working with the QFA here in Qatar and also the QSL and the whole national development and growth of the country it's helped me so much. So India pretty much made me to respect my career, my life, because you've got such a diverse group of people that live so rich and live so poor, but at the same time mm. um, are happy. It's similar to the islands in Samoa. If I was to introduce iPhones everywhere, then I'm actually creating more of a problem right. than what they had before because um, they're happy, the simple things. And so what had happened in India is with the Tata group and Atletico Madrid, with the club we played for, part of the deal was for me was to implement football schools in, 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 uh, in local communities, was to spread the name of the game, was to build the league, was to bring um, my Asian value of playing in the Asian region right. um, some more exposure. But what I wanted to do was spread football and football as in the grassroots program. So I left a legacy uh, per se, and I still touch on those legacies because as an ambassador of the World Cup, I get to implement programs now in Africa or in India or Australia or anywhere. So to be honest with you, India, I got home from India after nine months and literally I wasn't the same person. I literally switched off every light. I I basically changed my whole mindset and said to my kids, you know, we have the best of life, we have the best life, we have everything, and then it made me more hungry. So when hungry as in how can I help more, how can I do more, right. more? and that is a positive change for me mentally uh, because I, need, I think I needed that refresh mm. because four World Cups, 23 years playing, it is mentally fatiguing, but then also you need a balance to know who you are and what you've done. So football, like I said, has been an amazing conduit to the things that people don't really see and the things that it can impact uh, internationally. It sounds like it made you more grateful too, which is like the key to happiness, right? Yeah, because that's the why. That's, you know, that's, that's the why, the reason why we rock and roll, you know. It's, um, it, it gets me up every morning. It makes me feel blessed. Yeah. No, I, I relate to that. Africa has the same impact. I mean, not been to India yet, so you've inspired me to go there. You have to. <laughs> you have to. It's amazing. It's amazing. So, Tim, now we're going to move into the quickfire section. So just the first thing to, that okay. comes to your mind. What is your first footballing memory? Just playing in the garden with my brothers. Nice. And what was the first ever match you went to? Proper game was Sydney Olympic, which was in the NSL. And um, I went to watch players like Pablo Cardoza, um, which you won't know, but it was a club I played for as a kid and I looked at to these guys like heroes. It was my local team, which was NSL was probably like the Premier League of Australia at, at that time. 
And who was your first footballing hero? Was there anyone else that you sort of idolised growing up? I had a love for AC Milan in the Serie A. Um, Marco van Basten was my hero. Basically, when you look at that team, it was Verezzi, Costa Curta, Savicevic, Vauban, Rijkaard, Pullet, uh, and van Basten, like I said. Basically, I went through an era that that was my team. You know, it was Italian football was what they showed a lot in Australian TV. And... Um, yeah, Marco van Basten was pretty much a goal scorer of great goals, but also a footballer that just always resonates with me. Yeah, what a legend. And you, you have this famous celebration, right? The, the boxing celebration in the game when you scored. But I want to know, did you have any pre-match ritual? Yeah, for sure. I couldn't play a football game without speaking to my mum or my family. And also the other thing was as pre-match ritual... It'll be always to have two, three minutes to myself, like literally nothing to myself. Mm. I don't want to hear anyone. I don't want to see anyone and just, just put myself at peace because before games, there's always stuff that's going through your head. And mentally, it's the hardest thing to block out, whether it's family, whether it's something else outside, whether you didn't sleep the night before because you're thinking about the game. But the main thing for me is um, speaking to my family before I play. You know, in World Cups, I remember one time uh, on the bus, I couldn't get through. So I was ringing everyone and anyone because they were trying to get into the stadium. Wow. To be honest, I was supposed to be starting my first ever World Cup game and I didn't, but I had to speak to my parents to put them at, at ease. Because right. the night before I was starting, the, the morning of the game I wasn't, but I didn't want to tell them. So it's that sort of thing is, is when my family's at peace, I'm at peace. I love that. Absolutely love that. And as a people person, you said people are important to you in football. Who is the greatest person you've ever met thanks to football? Yeah, to, to say one is difficult because I think one of the greatest people, it's more like a mentor, and that'll be like David Moyes. Right. He was the guy that seen me, that took the chance with Bill Kenwright, but he didn't buy Tim Cahill, just a footballer. He bought the person. Right. He brought me into a project that could help reshape Everton. He basically built a team around a group of players and helped me to be a part of that to instill his beliefs and also what the fans had wanted. But what's more important is, is I've got a friend for life because he protected me from everything. You know, my family, he gi- he gave me everything that supported them in the fact of support when they're playing for the national team, traveling back, if I had any issues or things like that. So David Moyes is a complete man. People have their perceptions about signing for managers and who they should be and what they are. But even when you see him now for West Ham, with players I'm seeing similarities yeah. to that Everton team and what he's doing. It's it's no surprise. To me, It's he is a gentleman. He's fair, but he's also tough when it counts. And um, he helped. He, he cared about me more off the pitch than what he did on it. So that's one of the reasons why I never left the club. Right. And he knows that. And when I did leave, I went to the MLS, the New York Red Bulls, I then met amazing people. And still now, if you say three players that affect me as a character, then I'd say Thierry Henry taught me a whole different level of what football was about. There was things that I couldn't see that he showed me. Mikel Arteta, which is one of my closest friends in football ever, as a, as a brother, as a Moore's brother family, and Phil Neville for the professionalism. Mm. So you have different spices of what you take from people and how that that shapes you as a person. So it's a, it's a big question. It's supposed to be quick fire, but I'm, I'm <laughs> no, absolutely... I love uh, it. I love it. It's long, amazing. Quick long fire. Um, 
and throwing it forward to the future, you, you're doing such amazing things. You know, you've talked about education. You talked about what you're doing now in Qatar. What does the what does the coming year have in store for you? Simple. You know, in where we are now, it's about growth. It's about uh, bringing structure, helping the structure that's already here in place. It's a small population of 300,000 Qataris. And I want to really help the growth. You know, when you have these resources and, and been working here for over 10 years and seeing from afar what's happening, not working officially, but being here three years, really. Um, I think it's more about working with the national teams, working with the academy, um, and and getting as much out of, of my career as possible. So whether people look at that as a sporting director role right. um, because we have clubs we're involved in, we have the responsibilities of all these children behind me, whether it's athletics, swimming, tennis, fencing, then we also have the 230 boys that we have also within the national team set up as well as the Spy Academy. So the future is bright, but the main thing is it's um, the end product where you want to be in three to five years is that if that's running one of the biggest clubs in the world or if that's working in big institutions, then you have to really get yourself in there and get your hands dirty and start living that dream out. Tim, it's been so amazing to talk to you. It's been a privilege. Thank you so much for coming on the FIFA Play On podcast. Yeah, an honour to speak to you. No, you're a rock star. Keep inspiring boys and girls around the world. Uh, I love what you're doing and really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tim Cahill, what a player, what a guy. I was devastated I couldn't make it to the recording on that one. Well done, Annie, for taking the wheel. Thanks so much. It was fascinating to listen back, and it sounds like Tim is really doing some important things for the game. Anyway, on to the versus section. Let's take a listen and see what's waiting for Annie and me this week. All right, everyone, this is versus. This is the section of our show where my co-host and I go head to head. We're set a different challenge each week, and just like in any football matchup, the winner takes three points. It's one for a draw, and the loser gets a big fat zero. We're going to add up all the points at the end of each challenge to see how we're doing in the Play On Podcast League and see who will be crowned the eventual Play On Podcast versus champion. So let's go ahead and see what the game is for this week. This is Top That. The premise is this game is part knowledge and part strategy. The aim of the game is to name more correct answers from a list than your opponent thinks they can answer from that same list or to cause your opponent to give an incorrect answer by pushing them to bet that they can name more answers than they actually can. If a contestant lists an incorrect answer amongst their guesses, they will automatically lose that point. If, for example, your opponent says they can name five correct answers, you have the opportunity to one-up them and try to name six. Or you can challenge them to list their answers and hope they get that answer wrong. Confused yet? <laughs> I have no idea what we're going to do now. I feel like, I don't know if, if it's my English or it's just the game. But let's just start with the first question. <laughs> All right. First question is, how many members of the FIFA World Cup winning Spanish squad of 2010 do you think you can name? Uh, yeah. So I go first? Yes. Uh, I think I can name seven. Mm. I can name... Yeah, go ahead, Annie. Let me let me see your skills. Okay. Are you Googling? No, I'm writing. Okay. Is that allowed? I have, I have to write to process my thoughts. Okay. The first one is Andres Iniesta. Second one is Fernando Torres. Mm-hmm. Uh, third one is Xavi. Yes. Um, oh, my God. The defender from PSG, his name's just slipped my mind. Real Madrid player. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes, 
The one with the tattoos, right? Yes. Um, okay, I'll come back to him. Uh, David Villa. Okay, Busquets. Oh. I really need to get this guy's name. Oh my god. Five for now, no? Two more to go. David Silva. So I've just got to get this guy's name right. Uh oh. This is really tight. PSG. He signed for PSG. Okay, um, I've got to get someone else. Um, the goalkeeper. Um, the goalkeeper. Casillas. Yeah. Ike Casillas. Good stuff. What was the guy's name? Sergio Ramos. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> oh man. So that's seven members of the Spanish squad of 2010. Well done, Annie. You get a point. I, I get a zero for not even, not even trying. <laughs> you get a minus zero because you're Spanish. Yeah, seven was like too much for me. In the end, I knew more than I knew more than I thought. Okay, how many combined members of the massive American pop groups Destiny Child and NSYNC can you name? Mm. Full names only. Yeah, full names. I can name three. I think I. Um, can you name five? I think I can name five. Yeah. No, I think I can name four. But if you have four, why don't you just name five while you're at it? Should be easy. Because I can safely name four. I think with a stretch, I can name five. Then go ahead. Okay, so first name is Beyonce Knowles. Yes. Second name is Kelly Rowland. Mm-hmm. Now, this is my question, because Destiny's Child changed their lineup. So do you want the original lineup, or do you want the later lineup? Wow, this is incredible. <laughs> I'm a big Destiny's Child fan, so I know. Yeah, okay. Okay, let, let's go for Michelle Williams. Yeah. In sync, we've got Justin Timberlake. Okay, I'm losing 2-0. This is, this is really embarrassing for me, especially after the Spanish and the music question. <laughs> so, any next question is, how many teams can you name from the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup? I think I can name 10. Well, any, I think I could name 12. Wow, yeah. okay. Uh -huh. Okay, that's confident. Yes. Um, I think World I can Cup. top that then and name 13. Right. <laughs> well, that's your lucky number, then you go ahead. <laughs> okay, so... Got USA, France, Netherlands, uh, Spain, mm -hmm. England, Thailand, Nigeria, um, Scotland, um, Argentina, uh, Chile, um, Germany, uh, Venezuela. Hmm. Ah. No, Venezuela was not in the World Cup. Damn it! <laughs> I did about 15 games on the TV for Fox. Oh, all right. Because I had to study all of these teams. Right, Alvaro, how many UK or US number one singles by the pop band The Beatles can you name? Oh. The pressure's on. You need to get a yeah. point to tie this. Yes, I mean, the thing is that, okay... Everyone knows the Beatles. They're, probably every song was on number one. I have no idea, but that's the tricky part then. I would say I can name four. Oof. I won't, I won't bet against that. You sure? Okay. I'm coming up with like one, maybe. <laughs> Come on. I guess two at least. Everyone should know. <laughs> it's before my time. Yeah. Well, also before my time, though. Um, I think um, I would say, I mean, let it be. Yesterday. Um, hey, Jude, probably. Oh. Good. And then... Uh, oh. A Hard Day's Night? Woo! Okay. Good. 
Oh, the last one was tricky. I I didn't know if the last one was. It was the first that popped into mind. I didn't know if it was one number one or not. I had yellow submarine. It's my only one. Well, Annie, I think you were. This is like the first verses that we also did. You were. I think you were winning the first two games and then kind of recovered. Ah, feels so good. I mean, this is this is great. It's a great feeling at the end of the challenge. <laughs> yeah, it's disappointing, you know, to go two ahead and and give up the points. Well, it's okay. There's more games to play, so let's see who wins the challenge. Let's do it. And that's a wrap on another episode of the FIFA Play On podcast. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. Make sure you subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice and give us a five-star rating. You can follow me, Annie, and FIFA on the socials. You'll get to play along with some of the Versus challenges. There's some video bonus content and you'll get a little glimpse behind the scenes of us recording the podcast. Thank you very much for being here with us and we'll see you again for more of the FIFA Play On podcast next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.